Hi, and welcome to Breaking Free Podcast, a body-mind-spirit approach to mental health. I'm your host, Summer Seitz, and I'm very excited to have, I'm going to call her my friend, Gainalyn <laughs> Condi, uh, friend, colleague, and um, beautiful writer, speaker, leader. Uh, she's a, a, lead, a thought leader in my mindset, um, here to talk to you about the stewardship principle. And this is going to be really tied to our role as parents. I think all of us, uh, whether we are parents, whether we've born from our womb, whether we are aunts, uncles, sisters, friends, like parenting isn't just something that is done because you are a parent, although we will talk about her role as has being a parent, being an empty nester currently, and just a new empty nester. She's going to be a little vulnerable and raw because that is what Gainalyn does best. <laughs> for sure. We'll <laughs> laugh and cry a little. That's my plan. So welcome Gainalyn. And thank you so thank much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I love when the pre-taping conversation um, goes in all these great directions because I also really value just like organically letting conversations on, on these kinds of platforms happen, because I know that listeners, um, find it for exactly what they need. And so to quote mother Teresa, I just need to be the little pencil in God's hand. So I woke up this morning thinking about this podcast and it's so interesting how God is always kind of preparing, but I was thinking about um, embodiment. And that's something I've been teaching about a lot lately and just how we get to be the divine incarnate, right? We get to allow experiences of the divine to come into our lives, into our bodies and to come through us into the world. So I think that that's an allowing, that's a choice, that's an everyday intention. And, um, I think as you say, I'm going to be that pencil, right? Like I'm going to let myself be used that's something that you, I see you do all the time and in, in the dark and the light of it, right? Because being used of God is not, uh, it's a courageous path. It is. And I think it looks like a great social media post to live it. Um, mm. Especially this last year, I've been taken to places that, I mean, we're going to talk about it, but I feel like in many ways, um, what, what I thought things would look like have not looked that way or felt that way. And so I've had to do exactly what you just described and get down to the, to the seed of what the gift is and the trigger. And I always think triggers are teachers and I'm still there. I mean, I started in January having a conversation with a friend that, that does corporate life coaching and, and she's a dear, trusted, close, close friend. And I just said to her, I feel like my life is, you know, when my kids were little and I was constantly putting the blocks back into the basket mm. and the Legos back into the Lego box. Um, and I like order in my life and the blocks in my life feel like they're there, but they've been dumped out in front of me on the floor and I'm sitting on the couch and I like to put order into my life and my gut reaction is to put them back in the basket. And I feel like God is asking me this whole year, like we're in September at the time of this taping. So from January to September, I would honestly say there's not a lot more order to those blocks. And I've given myself permission probably for the first time in 51 years on the planet to just look at them and observe and there's moments I go into panic and I want to put meaning and order 
but I've really tried to just be present and intentional with observing as I've watched certain things happen for the people I love, for the projects I love that I have no control over. And so if I like had to tattoo a word across my arm for this year, I would say it's transition. I feel like my physical body, I'm perimetopausal. I'm an empty nester. My 10th book is out. Um, I've done a good nine years of speaking, which is about 5,000 keynotes, thousands of interviews like this. And when your babies move out, your last one, I think it's just been an interesting time. And we were talking about before we started pushing record, there's not a lot of content out there. There's not a lot of people having the conversation I think we're going to have today within the context of mental health, faith, parenting, empty nesting. Like there's a ton of content about potty training, teaching your kids to read, helping them even getting pregnant and having babies. And then there's like this little less of a gap during the teenage years of content. There's almost nothing out there about adult parenting and at all. Like my, my newest book, the stewardship principle, I I recommend it because I'm like, I don't, there's not a lot of resources out there to frame this stage of life. And it's a beautiful stage but to pull it full circle, it feels like sitting on the couch, staring at the pile of blocks. And I'm not sure which ones I'm going to keep and which ones I'm not. And I'm not sure what order they're going to go back in the basket and being uncomfortable with that space is been my journey this year. Hmm. I'd like to add, I just like, you know, the therapist in me sees some beautiful themes here and we're going to have a real conversation, yeah. right? So, and one of the things that I really want to point out to you in that conversation that I see in the human experience, right? Cause that's my job is to look at patterns is to see this beautiful invitation to surrender for you, to see this beautiful invitation to step into what does surrender look like now? Because there's this version of us, right? This version of us that wants order, I would say control, wants everything to fit, right? In a way that we, our previous self saw it fit to fit or thought it would be safe or good. And not that order isn't beautiful, but I think in the surrender, we say, I'm going to let the divine, I'm going to let life do the ordering now. I'm going to, I'm just going to be in the process. I'm going to be present with what's being taught every day to me. And I'm no longer, I no longer have an agenda. I'm being comfortable with the unknown and I'm learning to step into it. That's when I see really big transformation. Cause you talked about it, transition, transformation, very similar words. That's when the big transitions happen in our life is when we say, I actually don't need to be in control. I don't need order. And I can know, surrender from the trauma of my childhood, from trauma that I've experienced in my adult life. And yeah. I think your listeners can relate. We all as humans experience trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's understandable why we go to that control and order, right? It's understandable why it can we- be skillful. It can yeah, be skillful. Right, Absolutely. Right. It's not a negative, right? I think people think of a control as a negative. No. Putting no. structure, I think it's a better word for control, structure around our but, lives. Is but it has felt less effective. I've said mm-hmm. recently, um, I see where God really directed me this year to create more gap space. This past summer, I had more no's to professional invitations than I've ever given myself permission for. And it was intentional because it was the last summer my, my youngest would be home. And I wanted the option, even though she was busy and gone most of this year, I wanted the option for there to be intersection, but I also knew I had hit some burnout. And I knew that from like a mental health standpoint, I didn't want to hurry and pick up 
while I was in the phase of observing and surrendering. And it's mm-hmm. easy to do that. It's like, it's easy to say, I'm going to donate this much stuff and then go buy a whole bunch more stuff. I mean, that's like a shopping example of that metaphor. And yeah. so I've really had to pause as fall has started to ramp up for me professionally again, um, to keep giving myself permission to say, I write about this a lot in a couple of books that the more you say no to, there's always a yes on the other side and everything you say yes to, there's an automatic no. And when we teach that principle, whether it's in parenting, whether it's with our health, whether it's with, Hey puppies. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry about that real life. I, I don't, someone just dropped a delivery at the door and my dog is very protective. Ruby. Ruby, I have an Aussie poo and it's very possible yes. we could have the same effect in a few oh, minutes. So. For, for sure. So she's <laughs> a, she's a Shih Tzu poo palm and yeah. it's the poodle in her that oh, all, yeah. all the breeders said, cause she can play the piano. She can give high five. She can dance. Wow. She can do so many. She's like human. We cannot tell her a safe word to stop barking when the Amazon guy drops a delivery. And, uh, that's what just happened. And she just, and the breeders I've talked to high, high level breeders have said, it's the poodle in her. You cannot, you can't train that out of her. So, um, anyways, my point is, is like, (laughs) I have really tried to do exactly what you just said in the surrender and not hurry and try to pick up and sit in the sacredness of the space and the the stillness, the stillness stillness. and, and the sacredness of waiting. Like I just did a social media post about this like waiting is doing something. And so much in our culture, whether it's religiously, whether it's like just your family culture, whether it's a corporate culture is that you must be doing something that waiting is not doing. And waiting is very intentional. It's very present and it's very active. I mean, I have to choose into it because I could choose into busyness, which is the opposite for me right now in the waiting. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think it depends where you're at. Like there's times when getting up and doing was where the energy was going. And then other times where I was having to, uh, me too, like as a person that lends to the busyness as a way of blunting my embodiment, right? Like I call it over, um, over functioning or um, over regulating, (laughs) right? There's a lot of stressful things and I'm just regulating, regulating. And, And this happened to me yesterday where I was like, whoa, I'm over-regulating. I haven't even stopped to feel my heart. And when I did, I could feel this like very like panicky, like feeling. It was like, you are pushing me too fast, too hard. Cause I've been doing a lot of this embodiment work lately. Just take a, take a breath, take a minute and feel what you're really feeling. And then, and you know, cause you do this work with people, then the floodgates. Oh, there's a lot oh, of grief man. here. There's a lot of emotion. I'm just not allowing myself to feel cause I'm staying really busy but that was the doorway that surrender to that grief work to actually be able to have very effective work moving and forward. You know what? And it's interesting that you frame it that way, because the reality is the cost of doing business is if you don't do that. And I have a lifetime of not doing that, uh, especially yeah. as parents, when, when our kids are young, we, we have to regulate in a way where they become the priority to just survive and help them survive. And as they become more independent and self-regulating, then we have to create a different kind of attachment. And I've watched my husband just in the last two weeks with my daughter moving out um, have, have space to check in with himself. And it's scary. And 
I'm a few months ahead, kind of like I was telling you this earlier that, you know, when I'm carrying our children for nine months, I knew we were pregnant and the realization for my husband was there, but it didn't really sink until we're driving to the hospital and the baby's coming. And, right. and in many ways we've mirrored that experience with them leaving. And, and I've watched myself and I've tried to be more in observation where I did put too many feelings on the shelf. And I didn't allow myself to always feel the shadow feelings. Part of that comes from a home where um, feelings were scary and it, it wasn't, it was a lot of emoting that created damage um, that I became very controlled at times. And I didn't ever want my children to experience that fear of mom and her feelings. Mm-hmm. My daughter is much more, um, my son and I are having different conversations now that he's 25, almost my daughter's 18. And she's always been able to put words on feelings in a different way. And, and it's interesting to watch her reflect back, mom, you've raised me to feel all the feelings. Like it's okay. I don't feel unsafe when you feel this way. Mm. And, and what happens is they do walk out the door and you do have a moment where it's you and the dog and the Amazon deliver guy. And that's about (laughs) it. I mean, to connect that back that, You are forced in the quiet sometimes to see it. And And if you're not comfortable there, if you've never spent time there, that's that's what I feel for, you know, clients of the whole life spectrum and my clients that are in their sixties, fifties, much older, even who now are really, you know, waiting if the kids happen to come by, they're busy with their own children now. Um, It's It's hard. It's a hard phase because if you're not comfortable with yourself and your feelings, and yet you're not as busy in the career anymore, I actually find that, that, that those older phases, in fact, if we look at the depression, as you know, and suicidal rates, right, let's do this for a minute. Cause you, you know, Gainalyn does a lot of work in suicide prevention Yeah. and our highest depressed group is yes. men, men I th- over the age, I think of 50. Well, it's 45. like stats right now are 40 to 60. And I think okay. we, we say, we call them middle age, but the number one group dying by suicide is middle-aged men. And every time I share that statistic, I see jaws drop because people are like, no, it's teens. It's our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters. It's our veterans. Those groups, those demographics are highly susceptible to suicide. But if we were just doing a numbers game and I'm married to an accountant. So if we just did numbers, it's middle-aged men. And I do. Why do you think that is? I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, my thoughts are, first of all, I think generally culturally speaking across the board, and I'm saying this is very many, a variety of races and religions is that women generally have the conversations you and I are having. We have a friend support group where we have some of these connecting conversations when we don't have words for the feelings we're having. And so we have a little bit of a network, number one. Number two, culturally, we haven't normalized men coming off as strong when they sit down at a dinner table and say, I went to therapy today and I'm struggling. Yeah. I mean, recently, I think my husband will be comfortable with this. I, I, I won't go into too much detail because I haven't gotten full permission on that, but with the changes in our family dynamic and our youngest moving out, he's opened up and talked more openly about where he needs some support mental health wise. And our son who's 25 left college for a good 18 months has circled back with his own journey with ADHD and my husband's, which I write about openly, um, in my latest book. And my son has been open about what support looks like. I have said to both of them, do you know what you do culturally when men 
post on social media or sit at a dinner table or go to work at lunch and talk to their colleagues and say, hey, with telemed now, I can go in my car at lunchtime and have a therapy session. Do you know what that does to move the needle in mental health and suicide prevention? It it makes much more of an impact than when I post about it and talk about it. Because what that ripples down to is your children, your spouses, your family members, your coworkers. I mean, when I travel for work, I inevitably sit on an airplane by a business person, a man who then tells me a total stranger, their deepest fears, struggles, mental health challenges, because they know the work I do and no one close to them in their circle know what I know. And they've just met me on an airplane. That's shocking. And that's where I would say as women, we can give the men in our lives permission and celebrate when they say, I need help. I'm struggling. I'm not focusing like I used to. I don't know why things don't feel the way they felt before. You know, uh, when we do that, and then when the men listeners, male listeners of, of your show hear this, we want you to do that. I mean, trust Summer and I, when we say we want you to talk about it, because when you do, it gives permission in a family culture, church culture, corporate culture in a different way. And, um, when we have healthy men, we have healthy societies. When we have healthy moms and women, we have healthy societies, but we impact our, our circle of influence in a different way. Yeah. And I I say third on that reason of why is there's access to, to firearms. And I think I'm not going to overgeneralize, but I will say this just in the last couple of months, the suicides that I get talk to about and, and offer support around the men that are dying by suicide often, not always, but often have some betrayal trauma or some honesty issues. So something comes out. I mean, at the time of this taping, the, the CEO of Best Buy just jumped to his death and died by suicide. And it was within 10 days of the stock earnings coming out and they have to close 170 stores. And that's blasted on CNN and CNBC and all these headlines are about how horrible this company is doing. And in front of his wife, he, he dies by suicide. Okay. So that to me is a shame-based response versus my sister who died by suicide eight eight plus years ago, it was a lifetime journey of mental health. So I'm not over, I don't want to overgeneralize, but suicide's complicated. I just have found often in a higher level that men often will either quietly be suffering with mental health issues long-term, but there's a good chunk of people within this group that we're talking about that they're living in some, some shame and some, um, dishonesty where their value system is in conflict. They're doing things secretly that don't align with what they value. And when that comes out, it can be a trigger. So listen, I would have spent all day prepping with you. If one person listening to this is caught in a secret right now, and in their minds, they're thinking, if this comes out, there's no other way out. I'm going to tell you and plead with your listeners. That's just a lie. The truth is it is painful when a lie comes out and it does have ripple effect consequences that are painful and take time to navigate. But I promise you the world will not be better without you. Even if we find out the worst secret that you think no one can find out. And honestly, 
Yeah. I haven't, I haven't said that very often on podcasts, so I don't know who needs that, but that's coming pretty, pretty Pretty strong. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's five, five times more energy to not tell the truth of who we are. And I'm, we, we can talk about that, not just the truth of who we are in our business, right? Or some of these aspects, but like be our true self, right? Embody our true self, whether that be what do you value? How do you enjoy things? What are, how do you really feel about God, right? There's all these different things that people really embody. I, that, that's that been my personal work, really, realistically, the last year or two, Gainalyn, since you and I hung out at the beginning of COVID. Remember, we were doing a conference together and then yeah, COVID yeah. broke out. Uh, and, and I, it wasn't yeah. our fault, by the way. It wasn't No, our fault. we didn't create it, but... <laughs> but I, people ask me, well, what have you been doing COVID? I said, I am taking the principles that I've learned, I've taught, and I've been embodying them. I've been doing the deep work, right? I've been going into the shadows and saying, where am I out of alignment in my body and the way I'm living my life with what I believe is true and really getting that in alignment because there's a lot of pain in the physical body, but what people don't realize is the body, it's this beautiful mirror, right? It's just a teacher of what's going on in the, in the mind, right? It's just kind of keeping score. And so- the body's wholly neutral. The body actually has nothing against you in any sense. It's just, if you're out of alignment with your truth, your body will show you that by having dissonance, pain, disease, right? Some of these things. And so as people understand that, like you let go of that lie, you move back into the truth. Your body is going to feel so much better. Your relationships will feel better. It, it, that initial purge can always feel a little like pressure filled, but it always feels better. Yeah. And you know what, to pivot that just a little, I write about in the stewardship principle about one of my stewardships and stewardship just quickly for those that it's new, everything in your life is a stewardship. So your education, your kids, your broken down car, your dog that barks at the Amazon deliverer, the, um, our power went out yesterday for a good two hours during a really bad heat wave. Um, all that stewardship. So everything in your life is stewardship. The good ones we like on social media, your kid gets married, you get a promotion, you buy a new house, like, like, like the harder stewardships, cancer diagnosis, divorce, your son has heroin addiction, right? But everything's stewardship, the opposite of that. And, and one of the things I talk about is the ownership mindset and ownership's a buzzword right now where it's like, take ownership. Stewardship is not hands off, peace out, phone it in, um, kind of approach to life. It is very intentional and embodying, but it doesn't over identify with anything. And one of the stewardships that you just were talking about is your body. And I have the stewardship of lupus. Um, it's not, I don't over identify. It's funny what people know me from. They either know me from like, I know you from live TV, or I know you because you were on a podcast interview, or I know you because I read your books, or I heard you speak, or I watch your weekly show, but, or I know you because you have lupus and, and some people don't know about some of my stewardships and it's not because I keep them secret, but I really do try to show from a variety of my stewardships when I post on social media. And part of my journey, the last 30 years has been with lupus. And I would just amen everything you just said, because what I've learned, and I often will have people say, Hey, my friend just recently is diagnosed. She has new, she has young kids. She's really struggling. She feels like this is a death sentence. The reality is that's what doctors told me. They told me 30 years ago, I had 10 years to live and I would never have children. The fact that I've authored 10 books and spoke at 5,000 events and had two kids and lived 30 years past that is a miracle. But guess what? I am not symptom-free. So if you read my bio on my website, it says I've experienced healing from a major chronic illness. That's true. I have experienced healing. The fact that everything I just told you has happened is healing. 
that's an evidence of healing. But I don't, I mean, if, if people could see the, the video, I literally have physical symptoms. You can see in arthritis in my hands with hair loss, with a heart condition that no one can see. And, and that has become the great teacher for me. So as I steward over my body, just as much a part of what food I put in it, moving my body supplements is I have to do my emotional work or else my lupus shows me right away. It's a good barometer. Now I would love to tell you that I have a great formula for being symptom-free. I, I don't, I, I will probably steward over this diagnosis for the rest of my, my life. And because of that, I've learned, I've learned things about moving my body. I don't exercise to shape it, to look a certain way in a bathing suit. I move it because if I don't, it stops moving. That's the reality. And so that's one example of stewarding. If I go into ownership with my health and my body, then all of a sudden it's like, well, why are my neighbors? They're at, look at how they look in their outfits and they're running and training for marathons and they do yoga this many times. And, and then I'm in comparison. So one of the signals I've gone into ownership when it comes to physical body is comparisons and social media is a great way to connect and a great trap for ownership. And when we see other people's stewardships posted on social media, if we're not careful and we don't have the right dialogue around that, it can look like their stewarding as parents turned out this certain cake of a kid or their running, running and training program has created this kind of body or this education path has created this kind of income and career. And the reality is we're all in stewardship, whether we realize it or not. And when I'm in ownership, it's very outcome-based and comparison-focused. When I'm in stewardship-based, it's very offering-focused and it's more hopeful. I get inspired to know how to handle this stewardship, this physical body, this career, this these two kids, my marriage, whatever that is, right? Yeah. My house, my kid, my dog, my car that has literally been in the shop at the time of this taping for two weeks. I've had to borrow a car so many times. I had to move my daughter out with no car. Like I've had to remind myself of this principle over and over. I'm the steward over that car. I am not the owner of that car. And because I'm the steward, I get it washed. It's old. I get it fixed. I fill up the gas. I get the oil changed. I text, check the tire pressure, but it didn't prevent it from breaking down. All that stewarding did not prevent it from breaking down. Right. So sorry, that was a lot of stewarding that I threw out there, but I know, but thanks for explaining that. Cause we, we, we throw out the stewarding principle and then people are like, Hey, what is that? But yeah, I want to, I want to tie some things that some of my listeners have already heard that to me are like stewarding, um, principles here. One of them would be, one of them would be, um, as, as a principle, the law of detachment. Right. So as we as we practice a lot of detachment, we're saying I'm in awareness, I'm acknowledging something, I'm not attached to it. Right. I'm not, it's not my identity, it's not who I am. It's, it's just not you know, ownership. It's something I'm learning from, right? As we're talking about children, one of the things that's helped me the most, the most, and I'm gonna share experiences at a practice of the law of detachment. When I was struggling um with one of my kids around some, you know, some growth work that that person was doing and not necessarily the way I would have had them do it. Right. That's how it is as parents. Right. And I, 
realize though that my attachment to the outcome and ha- wanting things to go a certain way was so strong that it was causing me literally mental illness, physical illness. You know, I was getting very wrapped up in it. And as I went and water is often a place of healing for me. So I went and sat by the water and I just reflected with God. I said, what do I need to do? And God's like, you already know you need to detach. Now that's not what you want to hear when this is your precious, precious child. Right. But I, I did, and I often use nature to heal and people know that about me. So I, I, I did this prayer and it's great. This is your child. This is your stewardship. I'm just here to steward co-steward with you. I release the end goal, right? I release whatever is going to come of where this person is. And I'm not here to control Yeah, the outcome. And I went in the water and I I mean, I love the the image of baptism as kind of like a way of letting go of an old self versus a new self. So I went in the water, I went up and down in the water and I let it go. And I, and I let that person go. I let that control (laughs) controlling mom go and came to like, I'm just here to be a support and a witness and a, and a, um, and a cheerleader even for this person. And I can't even tell you how much our relationship improved and how much better I felt because I follow exactly what Gainalyn's talking to here. I like detached and just said, you know what? This isn't actually what I'm supposed to be doing in this level of parenting, right? There's a time to engage, right? Your kid's going right. to jump off the cliff, right? right? right. But, but it wasn't that. It was like this person's learning life lessons and let them learn those and just be a witness to that. Well, and I love, I love that example. And I love that we can talk about it, but when you're navigating it, I would just acknowledge to those that are listening to this, wherever you're at on the parenting spectrum, if I can only share one stewardship to try to show the difference between ownership and stewardship, I always use parenting because if you're a parent, you can feel it in your gut. Literally we are wired. I've told my kids this, The moment I'm a mom, whatever way that becomes for you, you will take a bullet for a child and not, I won't even hesitate. Now that is like at a primal level, a attachment attachment (laughs) that gets gets you out of bed when the baby's crying at 3am and feeding that baby and changing a diaper. And I've worked with foster parents that are fostering kids that didn't have a parent that, that had that level of attachment. And so they had never had a diaper change. So then you have a 10 year old that has never been given the gift of having their diaper change. They don't know how to go to the bathroom. That's a very powerful example of what caregiving, how sacred it is, but that phase changes and your children need autonomy. And they, part of what you give them is the gift of walking into a classroom and letting go of whatever they're going to encounter with classmates and teachers and social structures and triggers and their own limitations and, and their own abilities and gifts that they're going to discover when they're away from you. And then that goes into the teenage years where they are literally wired to keep secrets from you and create that autonomy where they challenge that culture that is in their family. And from a real standpoint, I think the guidance and support starts to limit as parents, we start keeping out of privacy and respect for our kids. We don't maybe always reach out to talk to other parents. Think about when your kids were little, you would go to the park for playgroup. I would, and you would go into ownership outcome comparisons because the other moms would be like, well, my child's already reading or my child's already potty trained. Right. But you would, mm-hmm. you would gather and you Absolutely. would, right. You would sit yeah. around and you would sit at the park and then 
the teenage years, it's like we're parenting in our own little bubbles. It starts to become that, and we don't know. And on the outside, it looks like all the other teenagers are hitting these milestones and making these life decisions and transitioning. That doesn't change. And then all of a sudden your kids graduate and are supposed to go off into the world and become these adults. And I would say that's where the parenting stewardship mindset has saved my relationship in the same way that you just expressed. I've gone through my own journey. My 24 year old um, dropped out of college and for 18 months went through an experience where he moved to a small island in Hawaii and and we, we really had to practice this principle. And that's why I call it a principle. It's not perfected. It's principle, which means you apply it. It's not a place on the map you arrive. It's, it's a tool for the journey. And I recently asked him because then the book came out and I said in May, I didn't know it at the time, but he had, he had felt some nudgings and had some experiences and chose back into college recently. Now, I don't know where that journey is still going to end. Old me, old Gainalyn's mom brain would be like, okay, take a deep breath, right? Like, okay, he circled back. I have to keep choosing back into a mindset of celebrating with him and his journey. I see ownership in him now because he left for a time and came back. I don't know where it's going to end up for him, but I asked him recently, how have I steward versus how have I been in ownership? And he said, honestly, mom, when you and dad have been in stewardship, you've said very little. And that's painful because the reality is people pay me to speak. And so I'm like, dude, like people buy my books and pay me to come speak to their big events. And and you don't want to hear what I think about that. They don't. don't. I mean, I'm the therapist, right? No, they don't. My kids just want me to sit there and be present with them and feel with them and reflect with them. Yeah. 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 And and he said, really, when you have done that, what, what we did try to do, and this didn't mean that we didn't want to stay intentional parents. And I would just say, once your kids are not living in your house, sleeping in the bed, you know, they're sleeping in and you didn't pick their friend group and you didn't choose their teacher and you didn't schedule their dentist appointment and you didn't cook their meal. There is not a lot of cultural reframe of what parenting intentionally looks like after that. And so you see a lot of what I think you're referencing with your client base where it's like, well, then what is parenting? If I'm not in your face correcting you, if you're not hitting certain mile markers, if you're not calling me this many times a week, then what does parenting? And I'm going to tell you, I'm fresh in that because now my daughter, when my son was doing this leaving phase, I still had a child at home. When your last one leaves, man, oh man, it's a reckoning. And I had a very uh, specific conversation with my daughter about, cause she's going to college. They're both in college 20, 30 minutes down the road. So technically proximity, I could be in their business every day. I am really intentionally trying to let them have an away from home experience. Now, can they come home for Sunday dinner and do they come and do laundry? Yeah. But I'm trying to create healthy boundaries. The first few days were painful summer. I was a mess. She didn't, uh, my daughter, I said to her, how much do you want texting? Like, what's our communication going to look like? She said, you can text as much as you want, but don't be angry if I don't respond. I'm giving a very vulnerable example here, you guys. Um, Yeah. So I thought that meant she would at least like, like it or heart response to my text. She didn't the first two days and her friends that still live close by me haven't left home yet. Stopped by and hung out with me. 
and they had heard from her. And I was like, whoa. So listen, 48 hours pass and it felt like 480 years. Let's add yeah. a zero to what it felt like emotionally. My husband came home late the first day they, the house was empty. I have a very busy life, but it felt empty. And I was starting to tell myself a story. And the story I was telling myself was, oh, I guess all the people that I've put uh, 31 plus years of investment into relationship building, uh, I guess I don't really matter to them, you know, because my husband's late. My son hasn't called. My daughter hasn't responded to the text that I thought was a really healthy, just cheer you on, hope you slept well, hope you love your roommate kind of text. That night, she finally texted back. And I had already had a little fit. I had already had a, a, a really, I didn't offload on my husband, but I was not in a good space. The yeah. story in my head was loud. You had a trigger. I had a big trigger and yeah. it had turned into a story. And I think Brene talks about this. The less facts we have, the bigger the story gets. So I didn't have a lot of facts. I didn't know how she slept well. I didn't know her roommate. She didn't know before she moved into the dorm. So I, I had a lot of gap and a big story was developing. Well, that weekend she happened to stay the night. We sat on the floor. She did this whole, like I could cry talking about it. And she just told me everything. I am going to cry talking about it. Why not? We, we do embodiment here. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And I said, after she was done, I did a really good job listening. I just want to pat myself on the back because I like to give unsolicited advice and, and feedback. And um, I listened and I said to her, Brooklyn, this may be one of my top memories ever as a mom. And she said, really? Because it was literally just not planned sitting on the floor. And I said, because that was it. I just needed to see and feel this first stage and what this transition was like. And you just shared some things and I'm just rejoicing with you. And it's uncomfortable. She doesn't love change and she's struggling to find that new rhythm, but it was sacred. And after that, I was okay. Sunday, it's been a couple of weeks. She, she was also confessing some adjustments she's having. And I purposely summer got in the car and left before the conversation in my heart felt done. Mm. But I knew we had already said what we needed to say. And if I stayed too long in that conversation, I would go into fixing. Yeah. And I chose out of that, which was stewarding and it was painful. And we kept an obligation with friends and we got in the car and left her and she went back to her dorm. And that whole 24 hours after that, I was like, oh, I could have squeezed more time with her. And I could have, I could have. Re so I'm saying all of this as an example. Stewarding adult kids is a very unique and personalized path. I don't think it's unlike when they're younger. We just have a lot more examples playing out on TV and in books where we think there's a pattern to follow. Adult parenting. If your kids are really self-actualizing can look in a million different ways and what your intersection and influence in their life looks like will change depending on where they're at. So it's a very fluid and there's not proximity. And I think because of that, there is a little list of facts and the stories can get really big. And I would suggest the only thing I would suggest is keep creating language with your adult children around the feelings you're both having and keep creating language about what support looks like. 
one of the best phrases for stewarding when it comes to adult parenting and teenagers is what does support look like? And I let like your, that. I think you would have and say that. What does support look like? For what you? does support look like for you? Because yeah. most of the time, like you said, my kids have said to me, just listen, say nothing. And I they'll, think they'll tell you, yeah, they'll, they'll tell, tell you. you. And what I used to think support looked like was to give them an example of where I've experienced that. And they've given feedback that that doesn't feel like support that feels like advice. But when I'm talking to my girlfriends, I want them to say, yeah, me too. This happened in my life. And I take that as support. Mm-hmm. So I would just say, check the story in your head, realize proximity has changed. Unless you have boomerang experience where your adult children have moved back in. That's a whole nother podcast episode, right? Right now, <laughs> yeah. I just have weekend visits and I realized just in two or three weeks of them being gone, I'm doing better. I'm moving towards empty nesting, identifying. I said to my husband the first few days, I'm going to pull away from you as well because I don't want to over-identify marriage to fill in gap of empty nesting. I do want marriage to become a different priority because I think that's a healthy stage for us, but I don't, I want to become more intentional with self before I fill up that empty space with over-identifying in my marriage. That's not, doesn't feel healthy either. And we, we both gave each other kind of some space. We were grieving for a few days and we still are. I still catch my breath at times. Like her closet's empty. The dog goes and sits on her bed and she stares out the window looking for her person because she slept with my daughter every night for six years. Right. So there's still moments where it's like, this is odd. We live in a place where they show up and they showed up this weekend and I was ready for them to go. So that's a signal to me that we're moving forward and it's messy. And sometimes it's scary. And sometimes we're afraid of what our kids are choosing. And I would just say, I've changed as a parent. I used to be afraid and I would want to prevent the pain for them. Now stewarding in their life looks like, okay, I hope, I hope you have this lesson come in the package. It needs to come and let me know how support looks like through it. Instead of how about I prevent that by telling you what I think you should do and how you should choose. Which is that control, right? Going into how does that, how do I make myself feel comfortable? I want to add something that I know you are a big fan of, because we've talked about this in the past, like um, Dr. Um, Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps Score, and also Stephen Porges. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's the developer of polyvagal theory. Well, I have the advantage of taking classes live with those two people in a room talking to us as trauma professionals. So I, I attended a live class with those two professionals this last year. Wow. And, and Stephen, uh, 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 Bessel, and it's like on a first name basis, right? But Levine and Bessel, like they're, they're sitting there to talking about polyvagal theory. And one of the things that really hit me, which if you're not familiar with polyvagal theory, it's about embodiment. It's all about how do we embody and how do we really work through these triggers that Gainalyn's talking about. And she brought up something that really talk, reminded me of that seminar, that training that I had, which was these two professionals said, we have, a, we have a clinical problem with counselors. Again, I'm a professional mental health counselor with them seeking to fix their clients. We're seeking to fix people, right? We think that they're broken and we're trying to fix them. These are the the heads of trauma research in the United States today. They're saying, we are trying to fix people. And they're saying, and that's not what we do. We are here to be witnesses with people, to help them go into their bodies, to experience their bodies, to put language around their bodies, to be able to witness their bodies, right? To be able to 
the more that they can go into it and understand themselves, the more that they will be able to respond versus react to their bodies, right, to their experiences. And so I watched Gainalyn kind of be doing that, maybe not realizing what she was doing, but like, as you sit there and you say, hey, you're feeling really sad, you know, where's that in your body, you know, or is there, is there, is there any thoughts or emotions that are coming up with that? You know, I wonder if that's, you know, you're actually helping your kids do their work, right? And so as a therapist, when I do my work, their work for them, which I totally have been guilty of, Gandalin, right? Like I've been that therapist that have fixed clients. Hey, listen, full disclosure, I have a minor in psychology and a degree. <laughs> and the yeah. only reason I didn't major in psychology and become a therapist is I knew I would over own my therapist, my therapy clients and talk them to death. So I yeah. to yeah. education. <laughs> So you chose to, to use yeah. your skill well, right? I'm going to talk for a living. Yeah. And I've done that too. And I think that's why I'm moving into the teaching. Like I can teach this, right. For those that are wanting to hear it, but when people are struggling, they're not even in their brains, they're in their bodies, they're drowning in their emotions. They're, they haven't even, their body mind connection is probably not even there. Right. So partly what we're doing is just saying, I'm going to be a mirror to you that we want to get into our bodies, right? We want to reflect with what's happening here. We want to reflect on what's going on right now in our lives and doing that with ourselves first, because that's the other thing that we were challenged as therapists is, well, how's your embodiment going, right? How is your self-care? How connected to your emotions, thoughts, feelings are you? Because if you're not able to be aware of yourself, you're not even going to recognize that usurping that's happening with your adult children or wherever they are in the spectrum, because that's little kids too, right? right? I mean, you, you may need to be able to go in the other room and have a cry because you're human and put on, you know, blues clues or whatever when they're little, right? And then come back into the room and say, so they're not holding space and trying yeah, to support yeah. you in that. Yeah. Because again, we can't help what we feel, right? Our feelings are automatic. That's what Levine would teach us. They're autonomic. They're not decided. People are like, oh, you decided to have a breakdown. Nobody decides to break down, right? The breakdown mm -hmm. happens autonomically. It happens automatically. That's that word. And so we get to respond to that, right? We get to respond to what's happening with our children, with ourselves, with skills, but we don't, we don't choose to go away. That's a, that's the falsity with trauma. We don't choose it. It just actually happens. And then we well, need to respond. And I'm going to just say to one of the awarenesses I've had in this circling back to the beginning of our conversation, the observing the blocks on the floor place yeah. is that my baseline level of tolerance for transition has, has reached its peak this year. I've gone yeah. through some, some significant physical changes. Um, our family culture has changed. My, my career has gone through some big changes. Some that people can see on the outside. Some people can't see because it's behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And so one of the re realizations I've had is that my baseline level of anxiety has consistently kept popping up this year. Mm -hmm. And I've had to be really self-compassionate in all the self-care and intentional work I do for my own physical, mental health, spiritual health to keep regulating that. And, and for those that are going through some of these big swings, I would just be aware that like, I'm not as effective as a speaker. I'm not as effective as an author, a mom, a wife, um, an author, if I'm not aware of that baseline. And so I think after the last two years, especially with COVID and the pandemic, and depending on where you lived in the world, that baseline for all of us is high. 
Like yeah, we absolutely. are, we, we may need to pull out new tools or discover them or listen to a different podcast like this, hear a different principle, like the stewardship principle to just help re-regulate the baseline because the baseline of anxiety for all of us just across the board globally went up. And so addiction, abuse, depression, anxiety, trauma response, what you went through this year, what I've gone through this year, it's okay if everything doesn't quite feel the way it used to feel and you're not sure why, and you're looking at everything with a new lens. Like the subtitle of the stewardship principle is reframing your life. And I really, subtitles in author worlds don't always do a lot, but in this case, it felt really efficient and effective because when we reframe, whether it's a trauma tool, EMDR for me, the last few years, I've recommended that a lot for trauma response and healing massage, yeah. like all of these things we talk about in self-care. I hope we just talk about it as health, like self-care sometimes sounds optional. And I just think with our baselines as high as they all are, they're not optional anymore. Like it's not optional for me to not feel my feelings. It's not optional for me not to speak the truth to my spouse about something negative I'm feeling because the cost is too much right now. It's not optional with all the changes my body and my family are going through and my profession is going through for me not to spend some time with blank space by, like you said, a body of water, right? Like it's just not optional anymore. And I think that's the gift of the last couple of years, whether it's politically, we've watched what's played out, whether it's um, the pandemic, whatever it is, I think if we've chosen it as a gift, it's a wake up call to say, where's our baseline and what can we do to re regulate it down so that when that straw happens or the car breaks down or the dog pees on the carpet or whatever happens in your stewardship list, that that's not your breaking point. It's just not optional anymore for me. And I think 51, it's a beautiful time. I think middle age gets a rap, bad rap. And I'm just going to say it is a beautiful time for the empty nesters out there to look at these things that maybe you've put on that proverbial shelf that are now starting to teeter a little and crack a little bit. Um, use that space. It will be a gift to your kids and your grandkids if they watch this new version of you emerge. And you may have to address the shadow work in a different way because you can't feel the good if you don't feel the bad. That's what I, I mean, that's what I think addiction recovery really teaches that principle. But I think this, the last few years has taught all of us that. Yeah. Yeah. We're here to have the totality of experience, right? These bodies. And, and, and when you talk about that baseline, one of the things I really love is the baseline that you're feeling that physical response is just a program in your brain realistically, right? It's, it's, it, your body's keeping score with that. Although there's more, right? There are old energies in your body. There are old history stored in your body. So it's not just that moment, right? It's the totality of experience. It could be transgenerational. It could be not even yours. One of the things I often say to people is, is that even yours? Like for us empaths, and I know you're one, right? Like what you're holding on to may oh, be yours, right? <laughs> did somebody just come in and talk to you? My husband will be like, who did you talk to today? Oh. You know, he'll have that conversation with me sometimes. And I'll be like, you know, he's like, I know you talk to X person because I can feel their energy in yeah, you, right? Like we yeah. pick that stuff up, but- I do think that what we're talking about is we're getting very mindful. If you look across the field, this we're waking up in this world, right? There's this whole awakening that's happening that's starting to recognize 
what is the body, right? It's this beautiful vessel tool. There's this desire in the collective right now to be more embodied, right? To come into our bodies, to really embody our gifts, our talents, our love, to be intentional in our relationships and tools and thought leaders like Gaina Lint, like people are showing up in droves right now to be the teachers of this new, this intention, right? When the students are ready, the teachers show up. So if you look, watch social media tomorrow, just take a minute and look at how many people are teaching embodiment. Mm -hmm. They're teaching doing self-compassion work because that's how we get access to the body, right? If we're dysregulated, we're in self-criticism. That's this, this is science, right? We go to a critical mindset that doesn't allow us to approach our pain, doesn't allow us to get access. And I know you mentioned Brene Brown. She was my first to show me this, right? Years ago, but just really being vulnerable and authentic and real and saying, I need some space to just go in and feel this. And then I'm going to get some tools and support around where I'm at. This is where we're at in the world right now. And I promise you the tools are there. Just open your eyes. They're everywhere. And really there's a very collective supportive energy right now for that intention. And I would just say self-compassion for the grandparents listening to this, that feel like they're hearing some of this phraseology and these words and these tools for the first time, these modalities may feel foreign and, and like, wait a minute. I think culturally we have a collective amount of pain that generationally we keep trying to do better. And I've told my kids from day one, you know, my son said the other day, cause my extended family has some pretty traumatic things playing out right now. And he looked at me and he's like, so is your breakdown about to happen or when is that going to happen? And I turned to him and I said, you know what, what I hope is that I'm, I've always given permission to do my work and feel my feelings and that I don't need a brick wall to hit me that I can hear the lesson with the brick instead of the brick wall. And I think Oprah said that originally. So I want to give her credit, but, Mm -hmm. um, I think collectively we've had the brick wall hit us. And so do do we, do we do better for the next generation? And if this feels like, why didn't you know this before we, we do better when we know more, we do more. And and I think they help break it open for all of us. Yeah. If you're still alive, we're standing on their shoulders. Really, That's instantly. right. And if you're Absolutely. 80 years old and you were raised in a family where the way you parented was a punch upside the head and you're trying to do better, but you're seeing regret. Can you just honor that you did the best you could with what you had at the time? And now, you know, more, and there's always time. There's always time to sit and have a conversation. I think some of the most healing, beautiful conversations are between a grandparent and a grandchild when there's not this same ownership dynamic going on. And it's much more stewarding already naturally, I think, because there's a generational break and the, the one leaving this experience can turn to the one still here and say, I see you. I love you. I lived through some stuff. I wish I had known better. And I'm proud of you. Like those as you are, right. I think that you are, that's what that older generation, younger generation, like if I, if I could have a dollar for every young person, they're like, I just want to be seen and known and loved as I am. And when that grandparent or parent can just say, you're enough for me. Yes. They find their roots. They find yep. their tools. How, and they're going to look different than the way we did them. Right. They're yep. going to look different, but yep. they just want to feel that mirror of unconditionality, which I think is how the divine comes in through us. Yes. Right. We embody it. Amen. 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 Yeah. 
beautiful conversation. I want people to read your book because I think it's some beautiful. She mentioned that there's a body mind connection in it. She talks about relationships, parent child relationships, how to steward our money, talents, like all kinds of stewardships that we have, not just our children. Um, But Gainalyn, how can they find out more about you? So my name Mm. is very unique stewardship. So Gainalyn with no hyphen is my website and there's links to buy it, but it's on Amazon, Seagull Book, Desert Books. Sometimes at Costco, it's $8. It's 68 pages. It's an easy read. It's for men, women, teenagers, college kids. I wish in college someone had handed me this book so that it, it framed what was to come, the stewardships that I didn't even know were coming, you know, and so that I could already just be in this mindset of stewardship. Um, One of my favorite things to hear is when readers say, I I just heard this from someone, they, they've read it every week for the last six weeks. And Mm. And they said it, it, it's kind of one of those principles that once you know it, you can't unknow it. And it does change how you see everything. I hope that it provides hope. If I, if I had to describe myself, I hope I'm a hope ambassador and hope to me is about the next plan B, C, D, E, F, and starting all over in the alphabet when whatever tools aren't working that day, you find a podcast like this, that you find a mental health pr- practitioner like you. And, and you try to have one more conversation. To me, that's what hope is. It's trying the next plan B and uh, stewardship for me is one of those tools, whether it's your faith, your family, your finances, it allows you to reframe them. Beautiful. Thank you, Gainalyn. And I Thank will also you. tag your information as Thanks. I put this out there. And, yeah. um, and I would love to hear, hear from, from more. any of your listeners. I'm on all those social media platforms. I'm not on TikTok, but I'm on Instagram. Uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. Um, did I say them all? I don't know. <laughs> you I don't know that I'm, you know, therapist and all. I'm not like the social media guru, but no, no, I no. try. <laughs> I love, I love that certain people have certain ways that they create connection. I think social media has, has a lot of traps, but there's opportunities for true connection. And, and I would love to hear from any of Absolutely. your, any of your listeners that want to want to connect personally. I'd love to be available. And I will tag you in my Facebook post and so they can connect with me there and also Instagram. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Hey.